Let's those pass complete to Curtis Martin. Martin with a nice move inside the 10. What is up, Football Nation? It is the last podcast of July, July 31st, 2012. Episode 16 of the Football Nation presents the Sportscasters podcast, and we're pumped up because we got a really cool guest for you today. You know, our very first show, we had Peter King. We were pumped about that. Yeah. Somewhere since then, we had Greg Cassell, who is the nephew of Howard Cassell and a member of NFL Films, and that was really cool. And we've had Dave Damashak and Adam Rank, some great guests. But I'm really excited about our guest today. His name isn't going to be that familiar to you when I first say it, but when you right. find out what he does, you'll be real excited. His name is Rob Gehring, and he is the director of the popular preseason football program on HBO, Hard Knocks. So we're really excited to talk to Rob, who doesn't do many, very many interviews each offseason, and we're excited to talk to him about all things Hard Knocks. Before we get to that, I should say my name is Steve Bennett. I'm the host of this little podcast, and Don Russ is my co-host. What's up, Don? Hey. And as I said before, it's episode 16 of the show, the last one of July as we get closer and closer. More importantly, the last episode without football. Right. That's right. On Saturday, we'll have a game played. So when we come back next week, we'll be able to at least talk about one preseason game, and we'll be able to look forward to a whole slate of preseason games the following weekend. Uh, A couple things to mention. You can find this podcast. Uh, You probably already know. We're at www.footballnation.com. You can find our other show at www.sports-casters.com. We'll talk about that more in the last segment. I want to thank our guests from last week, Adam Rank of NFL.com and the Dave Damaschuk Football Program and the NFL Network for being on the show. The Car Chase Network, which he hopes to someday create. Thanks to Adam Rank for being on the show. But I'm really excited for this Rob Gehring interview. And before we can get to that, we have to do three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. A little bit of sad news to start three things this week, and luckily, I mean, shouldn't, let me back up. Sad news, O.J. Murdoch, uh, 25 years old of the Tennessee Titans, died of an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound on Monday. He was found in front of his old high school, where he graduated, and he had previously been excused from training camp for, quote, personal reasons. Yeah, he was on the did not report list yeah, they, initially. They haven't said what those personal reasons are. Maybe they never will, but uh, he had some demons apparently. And really, I don't have much to add to that. It's just kind of sad. Uh, our typical bad news, I was going to say, has to do with arrests and stuff, but this is, this is much worse. Uh, so to the O.J. Murdoch family, the Tennessee Titan family, uh, rest in peace and Hopefully it's the last time we have to do a story like that sure. in the history of this show. They haven't, before anyone makes any conclusions, they haven't said anything about 
this having to do with concussions or anything because that had kind of been the way things it creeped into my head when I heard it. I, it. I did too, and that's why I said I wanted to make a point to mention that it, it hasn't been stated yet that it has anything to do with, like, what do they call it? Uh, not PTSD, but it, something similar to that relating to concussions. head trauma. Right. right. All right, my first story today transitioning to football. We've done a lot of stories the last bunch of months about Drew Brees and his, I guess, journey towards a contract extension with the Saints, which he did get, which we talked about last time. But I thought it was interesting. If, you, if I'm a I'm a weekly reader of Monday Morning Quarterback, Peter King's column, which I think is fantastic on SI.com, and I don't mind plugging that because Peter was nice enough to be a part of the first ever episode of this podcast. But I thought it was really interesting because Peter's on his annual training camp tour. And as of the writing of Monday, he had been to five training camps, one of which was New Orleans. And the reason he was in New Orleans, which is something I wanted to bring up, is because the Saints unveiled a statue in an area near the Superdome, which they call Champion Square. Okay. And the statue commemorates the Steve Gleason punt block, the fourth play from scrimmage, the night that the Saints returned to the Superdome in 2006. Oh, After okay. Kat- Katrina. And it's been a little bit of a controversy because the Falcons declined to allow the Saints to use their logo on the punter. Oh, really? So the punter is just wearing like a blank jersey because the Falcons put rivalry ahead of doing the right thing for Steve Gleason in his fight for he has uh, Lou Gehrig's disease. Right, right, right. And is unfortunately slowly dying of it. That, yeah, that's that's interesting. So it's really surprising to me that the Falcons would not would you, allow it. They've defended themselves by saying that they were asked by the Saints, they have to get permission from the league, and they basically called the league and said that they would rather not be a part of it. So the league didn't grant the Saints permission based on the Falcons. Yeah, on a human level, that's disappointing because – of what he's going through. I mean, he wouldn't have the statue probably if he wasn't going through that. I mean, it was it was a big play, a uh, nice historic play. Arguably the second biggest moment in franchise history. Right. Behind the Tracy Porter pick. So so maybe they would have a statue for this regardless. But say say he didn't have Lou Gehrig's disease, would you be surprised then if they didn't want to be a part of it? Um, I think there's so much more to it in the sense that, remember, that was the first game back after Katrina, Katrina right. and everything that the city of New Orleans had been through. I think that what happens is the Falcons now become part of it every time someone looks at the statue. And if Let's say five years from now I have a son and I bring him there. I imagine he's going to turn to me and say, Daddy, why does this other player have a blank helmet? Have a blank helmet? Yeah. What team was he on? I, I wonder what the punter would say about it. I, I, I know he did tweet. Oh, did he? Yeah, and I don't remember exactly what he said. Something along the lines of he wishes the best for... He kind of stayed away from the controversy of the likeness right? and basically said he wishes for Gleason. Steve Gleason the best yeah. and half of him is glad to be a part of it, kind of, is what he said. Yeah, I mean, obviously I love football and everything like that, but this is just one of those scenarios where I think yeah, you should put people first. If it was switched, I'd be behind the Saints being a part of it. Sure. Because I think of everything it represents. Right. Not it's only a, it's a regular season game. I mean, it's not like it's the mo- if this was the final play in an NFC Championship against the Saints between the Saints and Falcons, then maybe it's like, well, that's that's too negative a memory to want to be a part. Of. I, I don't know. You got to put people first in that that scenario. Yeah, and the the statue is really nice. It says 
you know, it's got it's got him blocking the punt, and you know the Saints logo is really visible. It's all bronze. It's really beautiful. Um, actually, I do have Michael Keenan was the punter okay. for Atlanta, and his tweet said, "Awesome day for an inspirational man in at team underscore Gleason. God bless you and your fight partner. Half of me likes your statue, smiley face. <laughs> Life beyond sport." Hashtag. Right. Exactly. I mean, he kind of did the right. I mean, he did the right thing there. But to get back to Breeze, my point about Breeze and this article with King, oh right, is that he had a really surprising comment about Goodell. So, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, King says Breeze had the following statement on NFL players' attitudes towards Goodell. Breeze got quiet and thought for a moment, then said, "Nobody trusts him." Nobody trusts him. I'm not talking about DUI or using a gun in a strip club, which are pretty clear violations. I think there are too many times where the league has come in, come to its decision in a case before calling a guy in and the interview is just a facade. I think now if a guy has to come in to talk to Roger, he'll be very hesitant because he'll think the conclusion has already been reached. That's... That's saying something coming from Drew Brees. Um, I know he's going to be defensive of his teammates in light of the Bounty Gate scandal. But other than that, Drew Brees is a pretty squeaky clean guy. So for him to have a distrust of authority figures, or at least to understand that people in the league have a distrust of an authority figure, Peter King, is kind of telling. In the article, Peter King goes on to say that basically Brees isn't the only person he's That's heard this that. from. Yeah. So, interesting. I, I mean, I don't know, but it's funny because you see the draft and all the rookies are pumped to yeah. shake hands and hug Goodell. It's almost like a love fest. But here you have one of the most respected veterans in the league saying that there's distrust building from the players in the league with the commissioner. Interesting. My second thing this week is, again, uh, a human story, but a nice one. Uh, Panthers Steve Smith. Donated $100,000 to the survivors of the Aurora shooting. That will be, I think the donation was made directly to the city of Aurora with the directions that it go to pay for their medical that bills. That is correct. So that's a nice thing. People kind of questioned his motivation based on the fact that he made it public. He said that he'd made it public so kind of like as a challenge to other players that and he basically said, look, th- these are tough economic times, and I have it good. I guess he even came to practice with a with a hat or shirt or something that said, I love my life. And he just said he wanted to put it out there that other people don't have it so good, and some of these people have lost lost everything. The one woman lost her daughter and her unborn child in the same day, so for her to have to worry about her medical bills would be a nightmare, or added on to a nightmare, so it's nice that... Hopefully she doesn't have to think of those things, and hopefully other athletes and anybody really that can steps up to help help out. You know, I in read, any way they can. I, guess. I read an article about this on a website called ProPlayerInsiders.com. I don't remember who wrote it; some handsome devil. Uh, <laughs> but he had a the writer had a quote from Steve Smith, which was through his agent uh, about why, and he said, as a father. And husband, oh, yeah, yeah. I cannot imagine the pain and suffering the vic- victims are going through. My family's hearts and prayers are extended to theirs, and I hope this contribution might assist in paying some of the medical bills that will help 
allow these families to move forward in this tra- tragic circumstance. Hopefully this helps a little bit from one NFL city to another. God bless. Yeah, nice thing for him to do. He also said that his son, his eldest son, was at a midnight showing. Uh, so it hit even like closer to home. That could have been his kid in just some random random theater. So You know, it's it's cynical of us to, in this good deed, try to find something. Why he would do it for right. him. Right. You know, and I'm not saying us specifically because we weren't the ones no, who right. brought it up. But, you know, it's too bad that he has to explain himself. He has to explain why he went public about such a kind thing. Right. But, uh, all right, my second thing. This weekend is the Hall of Fame induction ceremony, which was loaded with star power last year. Deion Sanders, yeah, you know, to name among a few. But the Hall of Fame class this year is interesting because it's a little bit more understated. Uh, Willie Rowe for the Saints and Chiefs, Curtis Martin of the Jets and Patriots, uh, Cortez Kennedy, most known for his time in Seattle, Chris Dolman, uh, Minnesota. And then the two Veterans Committee guys, uh, DeMonte Dawson, a uh, lineman for the Steelers, and Jack Butler, who played also for the Steelers, was a cornerback, right, right are off, the inductees this year. Right right off the bat, I mean, I'm going to eliminate the two older guys because I've never seen them play, so I, I can't have speak I. to them. But we were talking a little bit off Ms. the Ms. Marshall Falcon, uh Deion Sanders. Sanders were the top two guys last year. So right. the top two guys this year are Willie Rofe and Curtis Martin. That's a big difference. Right. Marshall Falk and Deion Sanders are arguably – I mean, first of all, they're more modern. They're arguably the best players at their position. Well, we can compare Curtis Martin to Marshall Falk. They played the same position. Right. When, hey. you, when you think of Marshall Falk and you think of Curtis Martin, I don't think you're thinking along the same lines. No. I'm not even saying that Curtis Martin doesn't deserve to be a Hall of Famer because if you look at his numbers, they'll probably blow you away. You, I, you know what I mean? But I think that's part of it. The fact that you look at his numbers and you're almost surprised that, holy cow, in 2004 with the Jets, he had almost 1,700 yards. Like He just he didn't stand out the way that a Marshall Falk did. Marshall Falk almost defined a position. He played it in a way that, well, maybe Thurman Thomas did it before Marshall Falk, but that kind of versatile running back. And Curtis Martin really wasn't this, that He's so a much. steady Eddie kind of a guy. You know, he started his career 1,487 yards, one rookie of the year. Uh, he racked up more than 14,000 all-purpose yards. Although he, had, he wasn't a bad receiver either. He had 70 catches one year. It's just, that's the type of thing, though, that you look at Curtis Martin and you're, you're almost amazed by because... The oldest player in history to win a rushing title. Yeah, he was 31. So, he, like we said, he definitely deserves to be there, but it's just the type of guy that he was maybe... I think I could say that without – he was never the best at his position. You would almost say that Marshall Falk deserves to be in the Hall of Great and Curtis Martin deserves to be in the Hall of Very Good. <laughs> you know what I mean? I almost feel like if you had levels of Hall of Famers, if you had all-time greats, greats, and very good players, I think that Curtis Martin would fall into the very good player section. Yeah, he had an eight-year career? No. 11-year career, eight years with the Jets. In 11 years, he made five Pro Bowls, so it may, maybe there's some injuries and stuff there. So, again, kind of, like you said, very good. Uh, I'm trying to find his career it's like rushing all yards. these players are very good players. He's fourth all-time in career rushing yards. So it's maybe we're 
I don't know. It's the type of guy that I, I saw him play. You know right. what I mean? And, might, I, and, and like, yeah, when you see things like fourth all time, but then is he a compiler? How many years did Marshall Falk play? I have to look it up. Yeah, look it up. And in the meantime, I'll mention Willie Rofe played in 11 Pro Bowls, was a four-time uh, league All-Pro. And we talked about this off the air a little bit, too. Again, he could be one of the best offensive linemen ever, but... He was Come one on, of who really studies offensive linemen. He's one of thirteen players to be named to multiple All Decade teams. He was on the All Decade team in the nineteen nineties and the two thousands. Falk played twelve years. Twelve years, huh? So one more year. Again, Curtis Martin. It's surprising how good his numbers were for some reason, and but again, I watched him play. You know what I mean? So I feel like. I saw that he wasn't the best running back in the league. Do you think the there's league. anyone out there who had watched Curtis Martin and Marshall Falk and would say Curtis Martin's the better of the two? It might be tough. I, I don't know. I wonder what Bill Parcells would say because Bill Parcells is a guy who coached Curtis Martin, I think, at both places. And he'd be really interesting to get his opinion. Who was a better running back, Curtis Martin or Marshall Falk? To me, I, I think it's a slam dunk that it's Falk, but maybe I'm wrong. I, I and if you look so at the too. numbers, it's tough to argue. But anyway, my point wasn't to put down any of the Hall of Famers. There's more to congratulate. Willie Rofe, Curtis Martin, Cortez Kennedy, Chris Dolman, uh, Dermonte Dawson, and Jack Butler and their enshrinement at the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And you can watch the enshrinement ceremony on Saturday on both ESPN and the NFL Network. And it usually is a pretty interesting show. Yeah, Maybe one, it won't be as good as last year's because we had some really dynamic speakers last year. But One last thing as far as that goes. The one spot they're kind of separated a little bit is yards from scrimmage. Uh, Marshall Falk is fourth all-time with over 19,000. Curtis Martin is eighth all-time with 17,000. Again, I think this is more – this maybe goes to show more that maybe I underrated Curtis Martin. But, again, I, I watched him play, and I just don't feel like he was ever the – the best player looking forward to next year. Do you think Reed Carter or Brown get in? And who do you think would be most likely of those three? So that's that kind of log jam at wide receiver that we've always talked about. Yeah. I'd have to look at their stats. I mean, obviously I'm an Andre Reed guy because he was a Buffalo bill. My gut would say Chris Carter was probably the, the closest to getting in. And I don't know why I say that necessarily. Maybe their numbers are, are close. Well, there's an article from Pro Football Talk about how the 2013 class, the ballot, will be very crowded. Um, so we talked about Bill Parcells, Chris Carter, uh, Charles Haley, Andre Reid. Those are our finalists who didn't quite make it. Uh, next year, Larry Allen, Jonathan Ogden, and Michael Strahan are all going to be eligible. Allen made seven Pro Bowls during his career with the Cowboys and was a member of the all-decade team for both the 90s and 2000s. Who was that? That's Larry Allen. Larry Allen, okay. Uh, Ogden joined him and made nine all-pro teams. Got another offensive lineman. Another one of the best left tackles in the game has ever seen. And Strahan is an all-decade player who holds the record for single-season sacks, a very polarizing player, 2001 Defensive Player of the Year. Also throw in Warren Sapp, John Lynch, Steve McNair, and Morton Anderson. Steve McNair's not a Hall of Famer. Probably not, but it's just illustrating kind of how it's going to be crowded next year. Right. I mean, Morton Anderson is one of the best kickers of all time. Does he make it? Does a guy like, where where does Warren Sapp stand? And you're just throwing all these new names 
into an already crowded, and you only get to put four in and two senior members, right? Right. So it's going to be tough. I'm right about that, right? Uh, Steve McNair is not, a, not hall a Hall of Famer. famer. No. Okay. No. It's interesting his name would even be named there. I guess maybe he's just the best quarterback that's... Off. Yeah, I think of the players I named, Warren Sapp, John Lynch, Steve McNair, and Morton Anderson, he's probably the... I don't think John Lynch is a Hall of Famer either, right? He's closer. I mean, he's so? a great safety. Yeah. I guess he played on a great defense, too. Yeah. That stuff's always interesting. But our last thing, kind of a combined thing here, just going to run down the news of the NFL. Yeah, there's uh, been a bunch of kind of little things that have happened, and we're just going to kind of talk about some of those little Bra- things. Braylon Edwards is one of those guys. He signs a one-year deal with the Seahawks, who I'd have to look at their depth chart, but I think it's getting pretty jammed at wide receiver. Not necessarily jammed the way he'd want it to, but jammed with kind of guys that... Uh, didn't they sign Antonio Bryant as well? They, they've signed a lot of guys. Uh, who's the quarterback they just got? Flynn. Flynn, that's right. And so, they also drafted Wilson from Wisconsin, and they have Tavares Jackson there. Right, and this is all after they traded for Charlie Whitehurst like two years ago. Right. So, I mean, Flynn's got to be the guy, I would assume. I mean, they, they made a move for him this year. Some interesting QB battles in free agency, not to get off on a tangent because we've got a, little news stories, a lot of little news stories to go over, but, I mean, there's Locker versus Hasselbeck in Tennessee. There's the Dolphins quarterbacks, Gerard Moore and Tannehill. Um, we Sounds like Tannehill is looking pretty good, too, so it's more likely that it'll be an actual battle there. A lot of times they won't just give the reins over to a rookie, but I guess really what do the Dolphins have to lose? But, yeah, right. I'm looking for the uh, Seahawks depth chart. Edwards here. will compete with Antonio Bryant, who I mentioned they just signed, Golden Tate, Doug Baldwin, Sidney Rice, Chris Durham, Ben Obamani. Ryan Lockety. I guess these are guys that I guess they would consider Rice, Rice. just a lock. Okay. You know. But man, they got a they got a lot of receivers there. Antonio Bryan is still there. Yeah, they just signed him just recently. Right. So, so yeah, yeah, crowded. Crowded crowded at receiver. Um, what else do we have? Marvin Lewis signs an extension with the Bengals through twenty fourteen. So that's nice, I guess. Uh I'll equate that kind of to the Bills, but Marvin Lewis has done it on a little longer term. But it's nice when a management sticks with a guy despite not having great results. Uh, Marvin Lewis did finally get them to the playoffs last year. but I mean, And one other time when w- Carson Palmer tore up right. his knee. But in, in front of that, it might have been there might have been times where a shakier GM or more trigger-happy GM might have gotten rid of him and they stuck with him. And it seems we talked like, about the Steelers and they're – Right, three three in coaches since '69, and, and kind of like what the Bills have done lately. They haven't really produced much well, rec- or they haven't produced well record wise. But I think most people here in Buffalo would like the situation that their coach has put the team in. Yeah, and since the Bills have made the playoffs last, they've went through so many coaches. Right, it's, it's time for some stability. Right, so it's good good for the Bengals and Marvin Lewis, and uh, kind of a bummer out of Seattle. Brian Banks, the player that we talked about yeah, yeah. Uh, a few weeks ago who was falsely accused of a rape, rape right. spent the better of 10 years either in prison or on house arrest. Looked like he might get invited to camp, but ultimately he didn't make the final 90 for camp there. So Yeah, I remember hearing, I think, from his agent after he got out of prison that he was in really good shape and it wasn't just like a, a charity thing. He thought he could actually make a team. So hopefully maybe he can uh, 
log on or find a practice squad or something. Yeah, you can find him. He's at OK underscore Banks on Twitter. And I was looking through his tweets, and they're all really positive about how he understood and he thanks Coach he was Carroll off, for we, his opportunity. Yeah, we talked about him on an earlier podcast, and he was offered jobs, I believe, with like the Arizona Diamondbacks. So it's nothing to do with football, but just a real positive kid, and I'm sure wherever he lands, he'll he'll do well. Uh, Eric Legrand and other kind of sad stories, another inspirational guy, but he has officially retired from the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. He obviously, he's got a bigger fight ahead of him, just learning to walk again and all that type of thing. But he retired, freeing up the roster spot on the team for them, and uh, again, another real inspirational guy. Hope the best for him. If you're a Tampa tr- Bay Bucks fan, go buy his jersey. I've tried to get him on this program. I reached out to his agent, talked to his agent a couple times, and he hasn't said no. He's just said that he's really busy. Yeah. So maybe one of these weeks we'll get to pin him down. I don't know. But we've tried. Yeah. It'd be nice to get him on. Um, Ota? Yeah. We we talked a little bit about all the moves from New York City on our other podcast, I believe. Uh, Jeff Ota being one of the moves. And it turns out that that move is going to be nullified because he failed his physical. Uh, so he goes back. He goes back. There's talks that, that maybe we'll give him an extension to try to pass it again. Depends on how bad I guess the Jets probably want him. I mean, they can. there's nothing that says I don't believe that they can't just wait for him to get in shape and make the trade again. Another kind of small Jets story, Antonio Cromartie <laughs> said that he's the second-best Jets receiver. I assume he means behind Santonio Holmes. Yes, I mean – Boy, so if that's true, the Jets are in trouble. The Jets are in trouble, and it's not going to be any easier for Sanchez, who's got, you know, Tebow right over his shoulder. Although it's interesting, I heard that Tebow wasn't exactly warmly received by the fans there. That there were some hecklers and some booers the first really? few days. But if you look at the Jets' depth chart at wide receiver, you got Santonio Holmes. Chaz Schillen, uh, Stephen Hill, Jeremy Curley, Patrick Turner, Scotty McKnight. So, yeah. yeah not, he could be right. He could be. He's a big, big strong guy. Uh, Anything else there? Oh, yeah. There's only one, as of now, unsigned first-round pick from this year, so that's nice to see that hopefully all these picks will be signed. And you won't be shocked to find out which cheap-ass team doesn't have their first-round pick in camp yet. Right, and it's the Jags and uh, Blackman. Justin Blackman, who they Who's already traded been in some up trouble. For. So at some point you just kind of feel for the Jags. Uh, and, man, they're not going to have their number one receiver and Maurice Jones-Drew aren't in camp right now. so The Patriots signed Jabbar Gaffney and Dante Stallworth. Oh, I hadn't heard that. So that's Stallworth's second chance to be a Patriot. Uh, there was some talk about how Jerry Jones is yet to speak to Des Bryant because he's quote-unquote pissed <laughs> after Bryant's latest run-in. Jerry Jones should maybe stay out of the news. Maybe he should just be an owner. The Giants had a safety, Tyler Sash, suspended for four games for violating the league's performance-enhancing drug policy. Ah, so that's a different story as far as arrests that we haven't heard yet. Um, Kyle Bull or Kevin Cobb has been announced as a starter against the Saints, so 
There's probably people out there that another quarterback battle like John Skelton, mm-hmm. who looked pretty good at the end of last year. And the last thing I have is Kyle Bowler has officially announced his retirement. Kind of a uh, kind of oddly, uh, yes. Just signed on with San Diego. Looked like it might be a good fit for him, and uh, it calls it quits. Interesting. So that's going to do it for three things today. Yeah, lots of news there. Lots of bunch of different things covered, and I'm pumped that. We're going to take a break, and we're going to come back with Rob Gehring, the director of Hard Knocks. All right. Our guest on the program today is a very special guest. He is the director of the very popular NFL show on HBO, Hard Knocks, which this year f- features the Miami Dolphins. And as you can hear from the fight song, he's a graduate of Duke University. A warm football nation and sportscasters welcome to the very talented Rob Gehring. How's it going, Rob? Good. How are you doing today? Doing very good. Really excited to do this. I mean, I have to be honest, I'm just a total Hard Knocks geek. I I think we said many times on this show last year that the number one casualty of the lockout, in our opinion, wasn't the wasn't the uh, Hall of Fame game, but was uh, the the absence of hard knocks, and it just August didn't seem right without it last year. Yeah, I mean, I tell you, everybody in NFL films, most of them missed it. Some of them were glad to have the August off. I tell you that. <laughs> tell us a little bit about the process behind deciding on the Dolphins as the team to feature in this year's show? Uh, well, I wasn't actually uh, an intimate part of that uh, decision, but I do know as a company we, um, you know, we, we talked to several teams, many of the teams, to gauge their interest. Um, and, and I think when the Dolphins came up um, and started to become a possibility, I think we were just really intrigued by Coach Philbin, um, and, you know, a rookie first-time head coach, um, taking on the challenge of kind of reinvigorating a franchise and um, and just thought, you know, that that would be a good story to tell. And I think it kind of started from there. With the Dolphins, when you found out it was the Dolphins, what kind of things did you start to map out in your mind as storylines that you would want to start to follow the second you got on the ground in Miami? Uh, well, you, you, you first you look at the veterans, you look at the leaders on the team, um, and you look at kind of their role in the team. Are they at the are they are they young leaders? Are they at the beginning of kind of their their football story? Are they guys that have been there for a while? Um, you you then look at where the position battles are. Um, obviously, quarterback is a big one for this team, uh, but there's also you know there's a lot of, of fluidity in, in the wide receiver position and the defensive backs position, I believe. Um, so you kind of look to see where those those camp battles are going to happen uh, because competition has always been a big part of the show. Um, and then you, you, you know, you try to look for those, those long shot stories, those guys that are just trying to make a team. I mean, this show started as, you know, a way of showing how hard it is to make an NFL team, the rigors of training camp, what it took to get through the training camp and then get on a squad. And I think, you know, a lot of these guys and are, are just fighting to have a chance to play football. And so, you know, those are the characters you look at next. This is the first year that you've done the show where it, there's 90 players at camp. That was one of the things in the collective bargaining agreement that the camp roster went up to 90 players, which is more than it, in the previous CBA. 
Do you think that that's given you more opportunity uh, to find stories, or has it made it more difficult in the sense that there's so many players to cover that some things might fall through the cracks? Well, I'm an optimist, so I'm going to go with more of an opportunity. I mean, there certainly are challenges to the fact that there are so many guys here, but I do think that you know the extra people is just 10 more possible stories, and I think that it's our responsibility to sift through all of them and find the best ones and find the ones that you know the audience and the fans want to see to find kind of the best mix of them and some diversity in those stories. Um, but yeah, I think the larger rosters are they're certainly a challenge, but I think they're a good thing. What was your reaction when you heard that the Dolphins had signed Chad Johnson? Uh, well, actually, I was uh, I was here. I was at the facility that day. Um, we were just you know scouting and kind of just checking out the facility, getting our our bearings and and uh, you know dealing with some kind of you know some of the operational setup. Um, and I've actually known Chad Kali for probably eight or ten years now. Uh, when he was first starting out the Bengals, I, I did a show with them, um, and I worked with Chad a little bit on that show, and have kind of done features and, and other segments with him since then. So. Um, you know, you know, it was good just to see him reinvigorated. I, I remember when I walked in the cafeteria and I had and ran into him. He just looked like he was ready to go already. And it was, you know, I just think that he is really excited about having a chance to 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 play another year. And and I and I you know I'm excited for him to be able to do that. Next thing, uh, the Dolphins are interesting because they weren't a playoff team last year and definitely quarterback, as you kind of briefly mentioned is something that they addressed at the draft with Ryan Tannehill being selected. And they have an interesting thing because there's kind of three guys there at camp that have a chance uh, to be the starting quarterback. And with the position that quarterback is in the league now as you know, the defining position in the entire league, we always hear this. It's a quarterback league expression. Uh, how much time will you guys be spending on the quarterback battle between the three guys? And I saw something interesting on your, your Twitter. It said that maybe Tannehill accidentally walked by some, some hard knocks cameras when he first entered camp. Tell us a little bit about that story there. Yeah, I mean, I think with the quarterbacks, um, they're certainly a position of interest. Um, you'd have to actually ask Ken Rogers, who's the coordinating producer of the show, as much about that as me, because we work really hard to give him all of the the paint for the palette, so to speak, and then him and and and, a, and another senior producer named Keith Cosro, they do all of the work to really kind of cull that into a really entertaining 60 minutes. So you know they have as much of a, of a handle on it as I do. I know from our standpoint and what we're trying to capture here, uh, you know the quarterbacks is just it's a it's it's a good room. It's you know there's three guys that are competing. They're all competitors. They all want that job, but you really just don't you don't sense any hostility or any kind of silly negative um, emotion like that. It's really it seems to be a very positive room. Um, Coach Sherman uh, is great with them, and 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 they really kind of all work together to to all help each other get better. And you know the the pessimist will will probably say, oh I don't believe that. That sounds like lip service. But you know that's what I'm seeing every day when we're here. You mentioned that that specific question might not fit you perfectly, but I guess that leads us to another question, though. As the director of the show, tell us a little bit about what that means exactly your role is for the show. Right. Well, definitely wearing a couple of different hats. Um, you are trying to push the envelope on, on how you capture the show, You know what cameras we're using, formats we're shooting on. Um, 
you know, what frame rates we're shooting at, what kinds of lenses we're using. I mean, there's, there's a very technical aspect of how you capture the show, how much sound speed footage you shoot, how much slow motion footage you shoot. Um, and then it's a matter of, you know, working with Ken and Keith to figure out what the storylines are, um, reacting on the fly to different things happening. A guy has a good practice, a guy has a bad practice, reacting to that. Um, and just really, you know, following the story. I mean, you know, I've said this a couple of times before, um, you know, Steve Sable always says it's like building an airplane in flight. You're just kind of, you're just hanging on for dear life and hoping that you can get as much good material as to, to, to tell what's actually happening, what's authentically actually happening here every day. I just want to follow that up with one kind of nerdish question here. The show started in the pre-HD world and then has since moved into the HD world. What what changed when you moved to sh- shooting the show in high definition? Uh, I don't know that anything really changed. Uh, I don't want to disappoint you from a nerd standpoint because <laughs> I'm that way too. I share that with you. Um, I don't know that much changed uh, because in its core, it's always been about the story. And it's always been about the characters. And so, you know, if if you're a good storyteller, you can shoot it on Super 8 or you can shoot it on Super 35. Um, so I, I really think that from a format standpoint, it hasn't really changed the show. Uh, you can, you know, make it look a little bit slicker and, and, and more exciting and give the, the fans more of a real feel of what's actually happening. But, uh, but I think it, it all comes down really in the end to the story. Football Nation and the Sportscasters here. Just a couple more minutes with Rob Gehring, the director of Hard Knocks. I wonder, you know, since Hard Knocks, it seems like this kind of sports programming has really evolved. I mean, HBO has 24-7 for boxing and the 24-7 show for the NHL the last two seasons. And also we've had Showtime uh, have the franchise for baseball. What do you think about Hard Knocks' influence on the culture of sports and sports on television right well i mean we, we definitely you know we like to think of ourselves as, as, as one of the originals um i do think that hard knocks um I, what i'm proud of what i'm most proud of when it comes when it comes to this series is that we've evolved and we've never gotten complacent and that you know i've had people ask me in radio interviews before what do you think of the franchise what do you think of 24 7 i mean we're fans of those shows. We're glad that that is that those shows are on television, and we're glad that sports documentaries and sports production is thriving right now. And and I think all that does is just add fuel to our fire to continue to try and get better, and to continue to try and shoot things in new and creative ways to tell stories better than ever before. Um, and hopefully, kind of as an industry, you all learn something from each other to keep putting a good product out there. But you know, I, I think you know we're a very quick turnaround show, and I think that there's. I'm very proud of how quickly we can turn the show around um, in terms of, you know, everything that's in in a show um, will have been shot within the last week to, you know, nine days or so. Um, And so, you know, that's a challenge for us that we kind of welcome and we hope that other shows continue to try and do that too. Um, So it's, I think that's where I'm at with that. Two more quick things. Uh, The last thing or second last thing you guys have been there a few days now. The show debuts on August 7th. That's correct, right? Yep. First night, August 7th. What are some things that we can look for? Some real small teasers you can give us of things that you've gotten already that will be in that debut show. Oh, come on. I wouldn't last very long in this industry if I gave my <laughs> best stuff away. So what about your um, second best stuff? <laughs> 
Well, no, I think what you're going to see is you're going to see what it's like at the beginning of camp. You know, the guys were in, in, in jerseys for a couple of days, and then the first day they put pads on, um, you know, it was, it was a typical first day in pads. Uh, this is the third one that I've done now, and you kind of almost know what to expect the first time the guys put the pads on. There's a lot of hitting. There's just, you know, guys are really trying to make their mark. And I think that was really, I think that's kind of a really neat thing for the viewer to see in this show. Um, you know, you're going to start to get to know a couple of the characters a little bit. We certainly are going to introduce you to some guys on this team, some guys you know, some guys maybe you don't know so well. Um, I certainly think Coach Philbin will be a part of that as, as the, the nation starts to kind of get a feel for what he's like as a head coach. And, and uh, so I think those are some of the things you're going to see in this first show. All right, last thing. Um, we talked a lot about hard knocks, but not that much about Rob Gehring. And you're certainly behind the scenes. But uh, give our listeners just a – you only do this in August, right? And I'm sure there is a, a lot of planning that goes into it. But what else do you do for NFL Films? What are some other things we can look forward to uh, seeing the direction of Rob Gehring on? Uh, well, honestly, I don't know that yet. I, uh, I haven't thought past hard knocks. Um, I work on a lot of different things. As a senior producer for NFL Films, I work on a lot of different projects um, for the company, everything from – from uh, you know inside the NFL or a very hardcore football show like that to other outside projects that we take on that have nothing to do with football. Um, so I, you know I'm just trying to trying to get to the end of this six weeks, man. It's if I look too far ahead as to what's up next, I'll you know I'll never get through it. So um, and I do think and I appreciate the flattery and 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 what you're saying, but please understand, Hard Knocks is is the ultimate team effort when it comes to a production. I mean, we have 30 people on the ground here, and they're all working as hard, if not harder, than I am. And so, you know, that's, for me, what it's about. And that's what I missed. I mean, I, you know, I did the show for a couple of years, and, and, and then I didn't do the show for a couple of years, and what I missed most was just being around the guys and having a chance to work with some really, really talented cameramen and really, really talented sound recordists. And I think that that's been really neat to be around those guys again. So, I mean, for me, that's what it's really about. Well, as someone who's been a fan of this show from day one, please make sure you thank all 30 people for the job they do. Because as a football fan, I, I'm, and I'm, I'd say this whether you're on the show or not, it's just it's an incredible, it's an incredible hour of TV each week, and we're li- really looking forward to it. So I should let you go so that you can get back to it, so that on August 7th I can have something to watch. You got it. Appreciate it, man. Thank you very much, Rob. All right. Take care. Well, that was pretty much awesome. Got to thank Rob Gehring, the director of Hard Knocks, for joining us today. Don't forget that Hard Knocks debuts August 7th on HBO and will run for four consecutive weeks leading up to the opening of the NFL season. I uh, want to thank... Me. Don? Yeah, thank me. All right. No, I was going to say I wanted to thank our guests on Season 2, Episode 29 of the Sportscasters this week. Jonah Carey of Grantland talking a little bit of Major League Baseball trade deadline. Tommy Tomlinson from the new website Sports on Earth talking about that. And Joe Poznanski scandal, if you want to call it that, or controversy maybe is a better word. Yeah. And Pablo Astori from Sports Illustrated talking a little insanity or the death of insanity. You can find our other podcast at www.sports-casters.com, on Stitcher Radio or iTunes. And you can find this podcast at all those places as well. Um, you can email us to sportscasters at gmail.com. Don made a request on the other show in our five on fantasy segment that I'm going to repeat on this show. Sure. And the request was Don is starting up 
well, why don't you request it? It's your request. Yeah, I'm starting up a fantasy league this year. I've never run. I've never been the commissioner of my own league. I've played it plenty of times. And I want to just basically real generally throw it out there. What makes your league different? How can I do something uh, to make my league more, f- more fun, uh, either from a competitive standpoint, a competitive aspect, like something that actually goes into the game, or just something outside but that makes it unique and different. In one league, we used to do a Twitter interview every single week with a different owner, just something that... That's fun. Yeah. Uh, I was talking about maybe having the last place team in the league is named the following season by the rest of the league. But I need more than that because that obviously will be a full year before that happens. So give me some suggestions. What can I do to make my league more fun? And you can email us those suggestions at thesportscasters at gmail.com or you can tweet us at sports underscore casters. You can also tweet the guys at Football Nation. Theirs is at Nation. All right, last thing for today is going to be our annual look around the Football Nation website where Don and I each pick out one article from the week that caught our interest and talk a little bit about it on the air. All right, my article this week comes from Jacob Pramuk. Pramuk, I might be saying that wrong, but I might have said him before. You always pick the hardest names. Yeah, none it's of these always people part are of my like cr- Smith. Or... Yeah, it's part of my criteria for each article. I have to be able to pronounce your name for sure. <laughs> Otherwise, you're out. Yeah. Um. His article, In the Spirit of the Olympics, he asked the question, which Olympic athletes have NFL potential? Mm. Uh, the first name on the list being LeBron James. People have already talked about yeah. how he'd be a great tight end, potentially. Big hands, big size. Usain Bolt, fastest man in the world. Hope Solo, maybe kicking some field goals. So, interesting read there. Check it out. All right. My article is by a guy with a really easy-to-pronounce name, Cooper Allen. Oh, there you go. Yep. Two first names. Contributor to the site. And uh, his article is a power rankings, and we've done a lot of these rankings. But his is pretty cool because it ranks from 32 to 1, the backup quarterback power rankings. And I can't really ask Don because we kind of went over it before when we were talking about this. But number 32 is Graham Harrell, the Packers backup. Number 31 is Matt Leinert with the Raiders. 30 is Kyle Buller. Retired. Retired with the Chargers, so I have to update that. 29 is Brady Quinn of the Chiefs, and 28 is Chase Daniel of the Saints, which I vehemently disagree with, and I'll tell you why. Obviously, I'm a Saints fan, I know, but they've had some awful backup quarterbacks in the past, and I would say it if I thought Chase Daniel was awful, but the thing is, he's had a long time in this system, and he also had the whole summer to run with the first team at all the OTAs and minicamps when Drew Brees wasn't there. And I said to Don, if Drew Brees were to miss, say, three or four games, I think Chase Daniel could weather the storm for them and maybe go 2-2 two and two or 3-1 and one at best case. But I wouldn't want to lose Brees for more than that. But I just think Daniel's a little under-respected here. Do you think the play calling would change? It would change a little bit, but... That's the thing. They're such similar players, Breeze and Daniel. Right. In the sense of build and size. Right, not talent. We're not saying Not talent. They're just – I think Daniel's in the fir- perfect spot, and this is going to be his third season as the backup to Breeze for the Saints. And I just think that, like, Brock Osweiler being number 27, one spot ahead of him, has so much more to learn about the Broncos' playbook right now than Daniel does about the Saints. If you had to bring Osweiler in, I think you'd be really concerned about his ability to lead the team at this point, where that wouldn't be the case with Daniel. 
yeah, Osweiler might have more talent and more upside. It might be a bigger star in the league someday. But I think right now, in terms of if I got to pick for my team between Osweiler and Daniel as a backup, I'd pick Daniel just because of his familiarity with the system. I like that article, though. Uh, we kind of pick sometimes on how in the off season it seems like it's all lists. Right. Everyone's writing lists. But this but is a cool one. At least it's... It's different. That's one you maybe don't think about a whole lot, but maybe you should because quarterbacks can go down. All it takes is one play for a quarterback to go down and uh, one blindside hit. The top 10. Number 10, he's got Vince Young with the Bills, which, Don, you think it's not a lock he makes a team, huh? I think it should be a lock he makes a team based on nothing but track record, but it seems like the Bills coach, Chan Gailey, has a little bit of history with Tyler Thigpen and seems to like him. I read another article on Football Nation suggesting that Thigpen could be cut, and I hope that is the case. I think Vince Young should be given a chance. If they've kind of said they're only going to keep two QBs, right? And right. Brad Smith. Will Brad be the Smith third. will be the third, the Wildcat quarterback, the punt returner guy, all that fun stuff. But uh, that should be the case, I think. But it just doesn't. Listening to what the Bills' management says, it doesn't sound like it's automatically the case because he's Vince Young. Number nine is. Tavares Jackson in Seattle, which I would say still has an open quarterback battle. Chad Henney's number eight in Jacksonville, which he could easily play some games if sure. Blaine Gabbert doesn't live up to his billing. Uh, then we got some good ones. Uh, TJ Yates at number seven, who played really well for Houston last year when he had to come in. Uh, Jake Locker, one of the better QB prospects in the league, is number six with Tennessee. Colt McCoy is number five in Cleveland. Okay, I guess. <laughs> Uh, number four is John Skelton in Arizona. Maybe some talk he could still win that job. Yeah. Tim Tebow, number three with the Jets. We all know people have differing opinions on Tebow. But he won. Uh, number two is Jason Campbell with the Bears. Okay. And number one is Kyle Orton with the Cowboys. And Kyle Orton might be the best one. I might agree with that. I think I agree with that. Campbell's kind of a odd number two. He's really never... He's always been a guy that seems like he could have been good and never really grabbed it. He's had his chance to be a starter places. But, yeah, so that's it for the show today. Uh, I want to thank Rob Gehring, the director of Hard Knocks. I want to thank anyone who, because of our interview with Hard Knocks, checked out the show for the first time. Again, you can find us www.sports-casters.com. You can find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. Uh, as we do every week, we kind of close our eyes and go to California. Uh-huh.